Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we are still at it, John. Still working our way through the saga of Ale Scott the Grimson. Yeah, but there's an end in sight, Andy. It's not coming in this episode, and it's not going to be in the next one either. But the one after that, ah, the one after that, Maybe, Andy. just maybe. You know, we've been, uh, we've been <laughs> doing this one so long that I mm-hmm. have uh, already gone back to the very beginning with my students. I'm teaching the saga this semester. Well, and we it's a just... very good place to start. And he- here's the amazing thing. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll be done with Ale Saga next week in my class. But uh, yeah. you you and I will just still be... Why can't tr- we just do that? Trudging can't we just along. teach this for a couple of... <laughs> no, but really, like, teaching it, like, so I have, like, a 75-minute format, right? Twice mm-hmm. a week. Mm-hmm. And I break it up into these little chunks. It is impossible to talk about all the stuff. And the students are realizing just how much yep. there's going on in this saga. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, their responses are great. It's really fun to see them kind of process this material. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, yeah, that's why we're spending as much time as we are, because there's that yep. much to talk about. Uh, and, and amazingly, there are still entire schools of thought about this saga that we haven't even touched on yet. Yet? So what is the we, deal with this saga? You said we haven't touched on yet. You mean we're going to? <laughs> I'd rather move on to a new I saga, mean, to be honest with you. But uh, well, Ale is... Yeah, we had room for seven or eight more episodes, don't we? Uh, no. Uh, but, you oh. know... Ale would be worth another seven or eight episodes. This is a, this is one of those sagas that you can just keep talking about. It's one of the finest works in all of European literature, I think we've we've said before. Um, but I think the real question here is, what's the deal with us? Why is it taking us so long? Well, we're thorough. Is that what we are? Well, there's just a lot going on in the saga. Besides, why rush? It's not like we have a pile of other sagas just waiting for us when we get done with this one. Well, it's exactly. The pile's getting smaller, but there is a pile. <laughs> Yes, yes it is. Uh, But for now, we've got our drinks ready, we've got our books marked, we're ready to go. What more do we need? Well, better microphones, faster computers, more time, (laughs) fewer external uh, commitments would be good. I was actually, I was trying to tee you up to lead us into a recap, but uh, that's fine. I can keep going. I'll just do it myself. Oh, you you got a better microphone? No, no, just start the recap. Andy, I think we just talk about what happened last time. Last time on Ale Saga. Ale continued his shanks mare tour of Norway by visiting relatives of his old pal Arnbjorn. At the home of Guva, Arnbjorn's sister, Ale learned of a bullying berserk named Jot the Pale. Jot had set his unpleasant cap for Guva's daughter, challenging Guva's son to a duel over the matter. But Ale took up the gauge himself and killed Jot to save the young lady from her fate. Ale now took up his long-standing claim to his wife's inheritance, which was in the grasp of the dueling champion Atli the Short. When legal finagling failed to win the case, Ale and Atli agreed to a duel over the matter. Another duel? They're ten a penny in this part of the saga. <gasps> Though both men give a good accounting of themselves, Ale realized that Atli was protected from his weapons by magic. So Ale found a bit of his own a razzle-dazzle, biting his opponent's throat out to end the match and Atli's life. Gross. After a brief sojourn back to Iceland, where we meet Ale's five children for the first time, Ale returns to Norway on hearing news of his old chum Arambjorn's return. The two have a bit of a brouhaha with King Hauken over Ale's continued presence in the kingdom, and Ale and Arambjorn confirm their friendship once more in the face of the king's snitfit. Ale and Arnbjorn then decide on a raid into Frisia as a way to make back some of their losses from the king. 
they prove as successful a team as ever, mopping the floor with the Frisian farmers and taking a large haul of loot to sustain them through the long winter ahead. Eventually, Arenbjorn decides to sail for Denmark and throw in his lot with the sons of Eric Bloodaxe. But Eil hangs on in Norway, continuing his defiant stance against Hauken the Good and his unofficial role as guardian of Arenbjorn's kinsmen. Ah. Uh, oh, it was the dueling episode. That's what yes. it was. That was a fun episode. Yes, it was. Ale really is in top form at this point in the saga. Yep. Uh, we had the duels, the courtroom drama of last episode, the head poem in the episode yeah. before that. Uh, and he's still got a few surprises in store for us. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're definitely getting close to the end of our story, but Ale's still revealing new aspects of his personality. What I enjoy, what I think most people enjoy about Ale, just on a basic level, is how fleshed out he feels. Mm. There are new things we're going to see from Ale still, but they all make sense based on what we've learned about him already. And we're starting to get a sense of the passage of time as well. We haven't heard much about them yet, but Ale's children are nearly grown, and Mm -hmm. we're clearly well into Ale's middle-aged years at this point. Well, I mean, that's part of the fleshing out of the character as well, isn't it? I mean, a perfectly consistent literary figure doesn't reflect the changes and developments that come to a real person over a lifetime. Mm -hmm. What's that great line from Muhammad Ali? Uh, A man who sees the world the same way at 50 as he did at 20 has wasted 30 years. We should expect Ale to be a bit different as he approaches 50 or so than he was when he was a teenage Viking. Yeah, and he definitely has changed. But we can see that as a, a skillful bit of characterization on the part of our author rather than as an inconsistency in the narrative. I think so. Uh, but I mean, all the same, we're not really at the point of Ale starting his physical decline yet. Uh, he's still got a fair amount of swash and more than a little buckle. A bit of vim, uh, a lot of vigor. A lot of vigor. Uh, some vinegar, some other stuff. <laughs> and he's still full of surprises. Yeah, I feel like you're trying to steer me toward the preview of this episode where he is full of well, surprises. Then your, uh, your feelers are working just fine. All right. To push the button and let's see what we have in store. Ah, uh, the old button gag. All right. In the far east of King Hawkins' lands lies the territory known as Vermland. Since the days of King Harold, Vermland was governed by an earl appointed by the Norwegian king. And while collecting tribute from the Vermlanders was always easy when King Harold was young and powerful, the tribute became harder to get, the older Harold got. And when King Harold's son, Hauken, took the Norwegian throne, he found it nearly impossible to get anything from the Vermlanders. In fact, the last two expeditions he sent to collect tribute from Earl Anvid in Vermland never returned. Some claimed that Earl Anvid was sending his own men to ambush and kill the king's men. And so, with no hope of Arnvid's cooperation, King Hauken turns now to Thorstein, nephew of Arenbjorn, for help. Fortunately for Thorstein, a houseguest overhears the order from the king and suspects trouble. That houseguest is none other than Eil Skatlagrimson. With only three companions to aid him, Eil bravely accepts the mission in Thorstein's place. Will Eil receive a warm welcome in Vermland? Or will he be given the cold shoulder and a deadly ambush for his trouble? After 24 of the king's men died attempting this impossible task, does Ale have what it takes to collect the tribute and escape Varmland with his life? Find out as Saga King takes on Ale's Saga, chapter 71 to 77.
like the sound of this one. It has a real quest feel about it. Yeah, as a contained narrative, this is a kind of a, a quest narrative and a complex one from a narrative perspective. Ail's at the height of his powers and he's taking up a difficult job under complicated circumstances. Right. But I think we'll see that Ail being Ail isn't going to get super bogged down in all the plotting and backstabbing going on around him. We might, though. Oh, we most definitely will. Uh, but <laughs> part of what makes Ale so much fun to read about is his knack for cutting through the subtler aspects of other people's best laid plans. As we've said before, the worst thing for a lot of people in this story is that just when they think they've got their lives all set up, Ale happens to them. What a great way of putting it. And Ale's going to happen to an entire political landscape in this episode. Oh, yes. Uh, is that our cue to get started? I think it is. It's close enough, at least. Let's go. Part 39, Skull, or a toast to the grossed out host who can boast to puke the most. Uh, what was that What was that last part there, John? <clears throat> I said a, a toast to the grossed out host who can boast he puked the most. <laughs> well, I, I see where we're going now. Yes. <laughs> a little preview for people. There you are. So let that be a warning to you. Um, all right, so we left Ale spending the winter at Thorstein Thorison's farm in Norway. Right. Now, our last episode dealt in part with Ale fighting a duel on behalf of Thorsten's cousins, uh, Fridgir and Gutha Jr. Yes, and this would be the duel against Ljot the Pale, the berserk who wanted to fight Frithgir for the hand of Frithgir's sister. Right. And before that, Ale helped Thorstein to claim his father's lands from King Hauken. So he's been doing this family a lot of good turns over the past year. Well, yeah. Remember, these people are all nephews and nieces of Ale's best friend, Arnim Bjorn. Yeah, that's an important point. Uh, we said a few episodes ago that one of Ale's defining characteristics is that beneath all the berserker rage and curmudgeonliness, mm-hmm. that's a word, right? Curmudgeonliness? Curmudgeonliness <laughs> is definitely a word. My wife uses uh, it about me all the time. There you go. Uh, there you go. Sometimes I forget it, that you, uh, you moonlight as a cranky dictionary. <laughs> uh, so underneath it all, Ale is a fiercely loyal person, and Aaron Bjorn's proven to be a true friend over and over again. So Ale's definitely willing to stretch a point to help Aaron Bjorn's family. And they're demonstrating appropriate gratitude for that by having him stay with them. Yeah, and not just him, actually. Uh, Ale's friend Onan Sioni is also staying with a few other men. Ah, uh, yes. Onan, the definitely not not a shapeshifter. Yeah. He keeps hanging around. I wonder yeah. if he'll... I mean, oh. he, we're kind of keeping him on the shelf. He's going to be important later, honestly. Just not in this episode. But that's what we said last time. What well, we were right that time and we're right again now. Yeah. yeah. This is one of the things that's like kind of really frustrated my students who have never read a saga before. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're being introduced to like these random genealogies or random mentions of characters, yeah. right? And then I, I just really enjoy saying, okay, go back to chapter two yeah. or whatever and say, yeah. see that name? Okay, There's now, a lot of deferred payoffs. Yep. Jump jump forward 20 chapters and right. there, oh, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Onan, Onan and his family have been popping up uh, since the settlement, since uh, yeah. Scotland arrived with his men. So, Ale happens to be at Thorstein's farm when a group of eight men sent by King Hauken arrive. Mm-hmm. And they bring a story that gets everyone's attention. Hauken's been trying to collect tribute from Earl Arnvid, who rules over the eastern province of Varmland. And the first tax collectors that Hauken sent were ambushed and killed after collecting the tribute. Well, that's a tragic accident. Yes. And then, to make matters worse, a second party was sent. They were also attacked and killed. And in both cases, the tribute was stolen. Uh Uh-huh. 
So Oscar these, Wilde line to to lose one parent is a tragedy. To lose both looks like carelessness. <laughs> this is, this is starting to look like carelessness on somebody's part. Well, Hawkins about to correct that. So these men who are telling the story are the third group of men who have been sent to collect the tribute. And Hawkins wants mm-hmm. Thorstein to provide an escort for them. And if he refuses, he'll be declared an outlaw. Well, that seems harsh. It is harsh, but this is kind of how you test the loyalty of your men or get rid of men that are potentially dangerous to you. I mean, this is a move straight out of like a King Harold's book. Right. But meanwhile, Ale's getting bored, so... Well, it's a quest. It's a quest. Ale's going on a quest. It's a sort of quest, yes. It's really more of an escort mission. Well, I mean, those are quests in video games and they're some of the worst. Like, right. escort uh, this but, fellow across this dangerous territory. and it's It's not just an escort mission. There's a lot going on here. There is, yes. And it's mostly political, which hasn't traditionally been Ale's strong suit, has it? Fair. Uh, and to be clear, Ale isn't being directly asked to take part in this mission. Uh, but he's been around Norwegian royalty for a while, and he smells a rat. As he tells Thorsten, It seems obvious to me that the king wants you out of the country, like the rest of our Imbjörn's family. Well, that is definitely the case. Mm-hmm. So, Ale insists on being present for a second conversation with King Hawkins' men, and when they repeat the come with us or be outlawed part, that's when Ale speaks up. Oh, is that my cue? Oh, uh, yeah, it is. Oh, God. You're definitely in charge of the main protagonist's voice in the next saga. <laughs> All right, here we are. Thorsten will not be going on this mission. A man of his standing isn't obligated to undertake such a paltry voyage. If you want it, Thorsten will send some of his men with you for the journey. And so the king's men go off for a little chat and maybe to hatch a plan. Not a cunning plan, though. No, more more of a scheme, really. Yeah, a nefarious scheme. Just a scheme. They whisper <laughs> among themselves, The king hates Ale and would be pleased if we could arrange to have him killed. Then he could drive Thorsten out of the country easily if he decides to. What was that? Oh, nothing, nothing. Thought I heard you saying something over there. No, no. Anyway, we'll accept your offer. But only if Ale is one of the men to come with us. How does that sound? Well, let it be done that way then. I'll take Thorsten's place in the mission. That's pretty much how it goes. Yep. Ale brings three men along with him. So with the eight king's men, they've got an even dozen for the mission. A dirty dozen, if you will. Ah. Uh, A dozen with eight of them planning to kill the other four, by the way. (laughs) But hey, at least Ale can bring Onansioni along on the mission, and we can finally find out why he keeps getting mentioned. Ah, Maybe. No, no. no. (laughs) Uh, Onan and his men are away for a few days inspecting their ships and seeing to the cargo, and so Ale's going to have to leave without them. Of course. You know, Onansioni is starting to turn into uh, Bran from uh, Game (laughs) of Thrones. He's like, a lot of promise. I believe you. Hiding in the background. I still have not watched that show. <laughs> uh, but what we have now is Ale bringing along three other men, and we don't know much about them, and we're not going to learn much about them, except that they're apparently hardy enough for an overland trip in winter. That part is a bit curious. Traveling overland in winter, that's not a good time. I think we have to assume that that was the point. I mean, remember, Halkin was apparently hoping that Thorsten would refuse to go on the mission, which would give Halkin an excuse to confiscate his lands. Exactly. Right, but Ale went and threw his hat into the ring, and now they're stuck following through, through on this whole charade. 
Halkin doesn't come off very well in this saga, you know? Well, I think, you know, when we first met him, he seemed reasonable enough. He but did. he's starting to seem more and more conniving. He's he's reverting to family type as the saga he goes sure on. Is. Isn't he known as Halkin the Good? I mean, sure. But, you know, many people called the good among Norwegian royalty are not <laughs> unalloyed <laughs> figures of benevolence. I mean, you could you could look at it this way. If we call him Halkin the Good, we're not calling him Halkin the Great, right? Oh, that's there you go. How can he's, the eh, good? He's good. He's how can the he's good. He's all how right. How can the shoulder shrug? <laughs> eh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, oh, I, we did mention at the very beginning of this recording because I was listening back to some of it uh, that paying attention to kings and the portrayal of kings in this saga kind mm-hmm. of important. So yes. we're starting to get an impression of Hauken, and it's it doesn't seem terribly favorable. Right. All right. So. Um, Everything does seem to be shaping up pretty well for Halkin uh, because yeah. he set this whole thing in motion. Either he forces Thorstein into defying him and losing his lands, or he gets his tribute from the Varmlanders. Or he gets rid of Ale and then gets rid of Thorstein and then sends someone else to get the tribute right. or not. <laughs> but it's a win, 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 slightly lose. Yeah, but you know it's not going to be that simple with Ale along to complicate things. No, nothing with Ale is going to be simple. And so the party is going to set out for the court of Earl Arnvid, who lives several days' journey away. Mm-hmm. And so they bring horses and sleds to make their way across the snowy lands. And this is just a great setup, right? Mm-hmm. They're traveling for a couple of days through the snow. Uh, there's a big snowfall that makes trails almost impossible to follow. And on the following day, they keep sinking into the snowbanks, all except Legolas, who lithely skips across oh, the tops dear, of the... Oh, dear, dear, dear. Oh, that's the wrong story. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're veering. You're taking a hard left here. Sorry, yes. They are sinking into the snowbanks, and they have to keep digging themselves back out. And the horses are sinking, and they have to dig mm-hmm. the horses out. And it's it's just terrible. And so they decide to go through the mines of Moria to find a better... No? <laughs> We're just going to keep veering off to that left, are we? <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, so everyone is wet and freezing. And the king's messengers finally decide... It's time for a Mm -hmm. break. They say, The trail forks ahead along the ridge. We know a farmer below the ridge. His name is Arnold. We'll go and stay with him. You go up on the ridge to the farm of a wealthy man named Armald Beard. We'll meet up in the morning and go on to Ediskog, where we can all stay with a good man named Thorvin. Yeah, and this is not all that unusual on the face of it. I mean, a large traveling party might well expect to need to split up to find accommodation for the night. Right, I mean, 12 yeah. men showing up at the door and asking to be fed and have their horses taken care of, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but under these circumstances, with this weather, it's a little strange to divide the party. Yeah, and Ale should be on his toes. Mm-hmm. Um, because these aren't normal circumstances. Ale right. and his men are going to head off up the ridge, as told. But as soon as they're out of view, the king's men put on their skis and ski away back out of the forests... <laughs> Not stopping until they get all the way back to Hauken's court, where they tell him about abandoning Ale in the snow. So these guys just had eight pairs of skis hidden somewhere about their persons and didn't take them out during the snowstorm, but waited until Ale was out of sight to suddenly reveal 16 seven foot long chunks of wood. <laughs> I don't think they're seven foot long. Uh, Remember we watched that uh, that movie yeah, uh, with yeah. the skiing, the the Last King mm-hmm. or something. What was it called? Uh, yeah, yeah. The Last King. Yeah, they were shorter skis. Fair enough. They were Five skis. foot long. Uh, I'm still not buying it. 
Well, they had the amazing uh, folding pocket skis that they were using. Right, right. Uh, we're going to have to assume these gentlemen are remarkably sneaky. Uh, but they're also kind of stupid. Well, why are they stupid? This is a clever plan. No, it's going no, just to- it's a terrible plan. For one thing, they didn't actually make any plans to kill Ale and his men. They just left them in the snow with horses and sleds. That That's it. Uh, for another thing, no. they told him where to go to get shelter. There really oh, is God. a farmer named Armad Beard, and his farm is exactly where they said it was. Mm-hmm. I have to say, as an assassination attempt, this lacks a certain something. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, on the surface, John, maybe. But you don't know Armand Beard. Neither do they. No one's told I'm Armand he's supposed so to be sure trying to that. kill Ale. <laughs> I mean, on the surface of the text, no one says anything about that. That's... But I have a feeling that these men have done their homework. Um, I think you're giving them a great two deal of credit. Given that John, they... two parties have gone this route, mm-hmm. and both of them have... And they said, not. if in the future we send Ale Scott LeGrimson, please kill him. <laughs> no, they didn't. But they might. No. Well, let, we should go through the story. Yeah, we should. And then maybe we. You can judge for yourself whether they knew what was going on or not. For the record, I, I have gone through the story and have, in fact, judged it. But <laughs> fair enough. But I maybe you haven't thought about it in the same way that I. Uh-huh. <laughs> so they seem to be relying on two things. One of them is the weather, which is getting steadily worse. Mm-hmm. So sheer exposure might be enough to kill Ale and his men. Yeah. Although, okay, I feel you could improve the chances of killing them by exposure by not accurately telling them where to find shelter. But go on. Uh Uh-huh. And the other point is that Ale is going to this specific Uh house acting as an agent of the king. And the last two bands of tribute collectors that Hauken sent were murdered where? In approximately this area. In this area. So Armald is expected to be hostile in general terms. Mm-hmm. He's not necessarily out to get Ale specifically, but he's not to be trusted either, especially right. with a man there to collect the king's tribute. Right. Now I think it's but I think it's pretty clear from later context that the king suspects that it's the Earl Arnvid who's behind the killings. Uh that Armad uh-huh. is just a sort of a local patsy. Uh but be that as it may, Ale, Ale and his men spend an entire day stumbling through the snow, losing their way as the storm intensifies. They nearly do get killed by exposure. Uh, the horses keep floundering in snowdrifts. Uh, there's a steep ridge covered in thick brush that nearly stops them in their tracks. I mean, it really sounds like just an awful, awful trip. Yeah. Uh, but finally, stumbling along in the gloaming, they see a farm ah, and make the, the gloaming. The gloaming, How yes. poetic, John. Yes, thank you. Do, do you prefer dusk? No, I prefer gloaming. All right. uh, you don't get to hear gloaming too often. <laughs> so get your gloam um, on. I shall. Uh, the point is that Ale and his three men see a farm ahead in these sort of the last bits of sunlight and call out to Armad, who's standing in the yard with some of his men. Armad asks who the visitors are, and when Ale calls out that they are envoys of the king, Armad immediately invites them in to spend the night. What a friendly fellow. Isn't he? They're brought inside, given comfortable places to warm up, and even fed a light meal of cheese curds. A light meal of cheese curds. <laughs> I, this sounds familiar. Yeah, what do you mean? Haven't we been here before? Uh-huh. Ale was fed cheese curds a long time ago, back at the home of Atloy Bard. Yes, he was. Uh, true. This is a little different, though. Atloy Bard was hiding the good food and drink for his other guests. This time, it's not like that. It's more about letting Ale and his friends stuff themselves on the cheap food before the good food even comes out. Uh, it's not that much different, though. 
And it doesn't even really work because Armand's wife is embarrassed by her husband's poor manners as a host. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hospitality uh, is something that Ale takes very seriously. And so she sends her daughter over to where Ale is slopping back a big bowl of wet curds. That is such a gross image. You just imagine oh, the little curds oh. in his beard. Just, the slurping noises. It's, all, it's the noises that bother me. It's all part of the story. Anyway, the daughter then speaks a verse to Ale. My mother sent me to talk to you and bring Ale word to keep on his guard. The maid of the Alehorn said, treat your stomach as if you expect to be served something better. Huh. I mean, a lovely reading, but not the most complicated bit of poetry. No, she's young, and so it's very straightforward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the uh, the curds are actually a kind of hors d'oeuvre. A terrible, moist, salty hors d'oeuvre. And uh, <laughs> ale's bouche is not amused. Oh, so clever. Talk about a notable witticism, John. <laughs> no, but he he's already eaten almost the entire bowl. Yeah. And then... Armand slaps his daughter and tells her to shut up. You're always saying things at the worst times. Um, The the little known Kilkenny Swedes. Is that what we're dealing with here? You can't trust them. You can't trust those... I'm sorry to anyone I offended with that. Oh wait, are you actually going to leave that? <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's is that Armand is, is has a faux Irish accent. Uh, <clears throat> at the end of his sentences, <clears throat> fair enough. Well, I say boo. I think when the host starts smacking little kids around, can we just assume he's a jerk? We don't have to do any complicated yeah, moral so. relativism here, do we? No, I would say he's a dangerous fella, mm-hmm. uh, and beating children. Seems like a reliable barometer. Maybe we're even being set up not to like him. You think? And she's right. There is better food to mm-hmm. come. Armand has the tables cleared and reset, and the rest of the guests then come in for the actual meal, which includes only the best food and lots of very strong ale. Quite similar to what we've seen before right. with that Lord Bard. Right. Um, so ale is uh, quietly furious at this point. I mean, the idea is clear. Right? Armad tried stuffing Ale and his men with peasant food so they wouldn't make a big dent in the fancy feast he's got planned for his household. Yeah, that's about the size of it. And as we know, messing with Ale about food and drink, that never ends well for the messers. No, things are going to get messy. Uh, Ale yes, starts eating and uh, more importantly, drinking at a ferocious rate. And this beer is very strong, which makes sense for a special feast. Yeah, I'd, I'd encourage everyone to go listen to our episode on drinking in the sagas or the Viking Age uh, for a clear and very erudite explanation of feast ales. But that episode doesn't exist. Yeah, Still. Any day now, any day now. Um, while we're waiting, uh, ale's throwing back horns full of this strong ale. And when his, uh, his men become too drunk and full to finish their horns, he starts drinking those too. What a guy. Meanwhile, Armad and his guests all take turns toasting Ale's health, and every time they do, he's encouraged to finish his horn. And mm-hmm. there's always a flunky right there at his elbow to refill the horn every time he drains it. They're trying to get him drunk. Well, oh, they're succeeding. Ale is drunk. And as the narrator tells us, it 
began to seem to ail that he would not be able to carry on this way much longer. <laughs> and he's still angry. Oh, drunk and angry, just like when he was three. <laughs> Fun times. Ail uh, <laughs> lurches to his feet, grabs Armad, and pins him to a wall post by the shoulders. And then he, he opens his mouth. And uh, this next part, um, if anyone's got a weak stomach, doesn't like, uh, you know, <laughs> things that happen in situations like this, uh, this is probably a good time to hit fast forward for about five minutes or so and, you know, pick up where we leave off. <laughs> Ail's, <laughs> Ail's not opening up to speak a clever verse here. No, no I, this is going to be a bit more visceral. Uh, Ail's tummy is upset. And when Ail's tummy is upset, he likes to share that with the people around him. <laughs> Especially rude people. Yeah. In a manner of speaking, Ail uncorks his belly and blows chunks straight into Armod's face. Yes, Andy. If you're going to be gross about it, yes. Uh, Ail is burping in Technicolor. He's talking to Thor on the porcelain telephone. Oh. How's that one? All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> While Ale's providing a replay of the dinner menu, Armad's getting the entire show. That's <laughs> <laughs> so gross. Good evening, sir. May I interest you in our regurgitated curds? <laughs> These oh are, of course, only half this... digested. <laughs> a little, oh, a little, uh, a bit of a mint off of it. <laughs> If we had potatoes, uh, there would be some here, but they have not been discovered yet. Uh, oh, God. Okay. All right. All right. While Ail's providing a replay of the dinner menu, Armad's getting the entire show. It's filling his <laughs> eyes, his nose, his mouth, and it's pouring down his beard and his chest. So uh, now who's being gross? Well, I mean, technically the author. I'm quoting <laughs> here. Uh, now, may I continue reading from this great work of literature? Oh, I think you, you must. Armad was close to choking. And when he managed to let out his breath... <laughs> A geyser of vomit gushed out with it. Oh, Lord. <laughs> hey, you called this one of the great works of medieval literature. Uh, now, to continue. <laughs> of all of Europe, yeah. Uh, Armad's men who were there said that Ale had done a base and despicable deed by not going outside when he needed to vomit, but had made a spectacle of himself <laughs> instead. Well, don't blame me, Ale said. I'm just following the master of the house's example. <laughs> He's hurling his guts up just as much as I am. <laughs> he turned into a Beetlejuice there. That was great. <laughs> I, I like in that line, you, you get a sense of kind of uh, medieval Viking vomit etiquette, yep. right? You've had a yep. bit too much to drink, and just like a, a party at our friend Josh's house, you step outside. I think I think that's etiquette at any party. I don't. <laughs> at what party is the etiquette not to leave the room when you need to throw up? Yeah, I think it's a timeless rule that I would you hope. don't vomit in the face of your host. Right. I think that's that's probably true. Yeah. Uh, all right, but we can't stop there. The next line is: Then Ale went back to his place, sat down, and asked for a drink. <laughs> He's not even done. Bin He's just getting started with oh, this binge awful. drink. He calls for a toast then. A toast to the grossed out host who can boast the most regurgitated roast. Oh, you're just trying. No, just forever. No. Uh, well, you can bad enough to put it at the beginning. <laughs> but I was just adding to I it. I know. All right. 
Ale actually raises his horn and shouts out this verse. With my cheeks swell, I repaid the compliment you served. I had heavy cause to venture my steps across the floor. Many guests thank favors with sweeter flavored rewards, but we meet rarely. Armand's beard is awash in dregs of ale. And uh, and then Armad runs out of the room, uh, presumably to throw up until he can't feel his face anymore, and then to wash himself thoroughly. <laughs> but uh, Ale and his men stay up for a little longer, drinking and talking, until they finally totter off to their bedding in Armad's barn. It it might not be Ale's finest verse, but no, in but terms of delivery, yeah, John. it's it's an, it's another example of our author reaching for a kind of verisimilitude in his story. I think. Ale's drunken poetry is qualitatively different from his usual poetry. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how well that comes across without being able to see the poem, but these are, are they're short, almost blurted sentences. There isn't a real poetic figure anywhere, and only one kenning or metaphor, the cheeks swell, uh, that stands for vomit. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, fairly straightforward. Right. There's another verse shortly after that. It's a little more artistic, but not much. Uh, and that, by the way, that second verse comes right after Ale's downed a horn of ale, uh, which uh, all the way through this section, there are these connotations of drinking as uh, partaking of Kvasser's meat of poetry. Yeah. Then then what does throwing up the drink signify? Uh, mostly that ale's kind of gross. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I mean, there's a whole there's a whole matrix of ideas at work here, but I, I don't want to derail the story completely. Well, uh, and at a at a visceral level, this is meant to be gross. Uh, as uh, John Carl Helgeson says in this passage, incompatible drinks, curds, and ale cause ale to spew. His nausea originates within the body. Then it is ale's vomit that causes Armad to spew. His nausea has an external cause. But is there an end to this domino effect? We as readers experience this scene as it gushes all over our face, so to speak. And it may cause in some a powerful physical reaction. There you go. Now, amazingly, that is a real quote from a real <laughs> academic article yep. that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you need a, a an expensive subscription to have access to. <laughs> this is what goes on behind the closed doors That's of academia. Right. This is what we do. <laughs> now, Helgeson is essentially proposing a stand-by-me Barfarama reading of Ale Saga here. <laughs> Our profession is truly a thing of great joy to me sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Rarely, but sometimes. <laughs> and again, we're really sorry if anyone has a, uh, you know, if you have a powerful physical reaction, you're out there jogging, listening to this, and all of a sudden <laughs> the front of your shirt's dirty. We're sorry. Blame the author of the saga. Uh, That's but right. uh, now they know why he's called the infamous Snoyster. Listen. That's right. <laughs> But to uh, get back to our story, Ale and his men sleep off the worst of their drunkenness, but Ale apparently wakes up with a bit of a hangover. Oh, good. A hungover pseudo-berserk. That should end well. Always, yeah. Uh, Hang on. (laughs) He he packs up to leave first, but before he goes, he returns to the main farm building to find Armand. Now, Armand Uh is still asleep, so Ale throws open the door to Armand's chamber, where the entire family is sleeping. And at this moment, I'd like to remind you what happened to Atloy Bard, who uh, yep. mistreated Ale in the first section. 
Uh, he ended up with a sword in his guts. He sure did. Um, so let's see what happens to Armand. So the entire family sleeping there. Ale steps forward and grabs Armand by the beard and then drags his head over to the foot of the bed and draws his sword. Right. Now, meanwhile, Armand's wife and daughter have woken up and are begging Ale not to kill Armand. Finally, Ale agrees, saying that it's only fair to spare him for their sakes. But if if he were worth the bother, I would kill him. It's an insult. Yep. <laughs> but a relieving insult to Armad, I'm sure. Well, it's a, if it's a relief, it's a short-lived one. Uh, instead, Ale pulls Armad's beard over the bedstead, chops it off right close to his face, and then gouges out one of Armad's eyes with his thumb. <laughs> and then oh he God. leaves, presumably trailing bits of beard from his hand as he goes. Oh, you think? I'd be more worried about the eye gunk myself. You know, in previous oh, sagas, that's true. Yeah, that's you, know, a fair you, point. you use your heel to gouge someone's eyeball out right. somehow. Your stiletto, yeah. <laughs> if I remember from yeah. the... Yeah. <laughs> I cannot wait for my students to read this this scene. <laughs> They're not going to react calmly or positively to this. You don't think? I can't nope. imagine why not. Uh, and that's it. So, uh, Ale and his men now return to the snowy road, leaving Armad mutilated but alive. Yeah, very unsanitary. Uh-huh. Oh, that's the other one. Um, yeah, but there's there's no way that that's going to come back to haunt them later, right? No, I mean, it's not even worth thinking about, really. Adventure awaits. Off we go. Part 40, The Road to Varmland. So, Ale and his three friends are back out in the snow, traveling to Earl Arnvid in Varmland. A lot of V's. Yeah. Well, I can't help you with that. Uh, right now, they're not they're not that ambitious. They're just trying to get to the rendezvous point up the road. Oh, yeah. They were, they're supposed to meet Haugen's men, right? Yeah. They they don't know yet that Haugen's men have donned their skis in an effort right. to uh, get Ale killed. Leave them to die. Yeah, they think the rest of the party is still going to be waiting for them at the farm of a local landowner named Thorfinn. Yeah. And again, if the plan was just to let Ale and his men die... Hawkins men are doing a terrible job of it. They they gave Ale accurate directions to find not one but two farms, right, including Thorfinn's farm, which I have to say lacks a certain merciless bloodthirstiness if you're really trying to kill somebody. Uh, I don't know. They're trying to get Ale killed, and he's on a mission to collect tribute, right? So yeah. the more people in the territory that know that this particular small, now very small party of men is here to collect tribute— mm-hmm. Probably the better, right? All right. If the idea is to set up a lot of people who might want to take a shot at him on the way back, I might buy that. That's what I think is happening. All right. All right. Well, be that as it may, Ale and his men do make it safely to Thorfinn's, where they're made welcome and they're allowed to stay for the night. But when they ask the news, they learn there's been no sign of Halkin's eight men. But uh, Thorfinn and his farmhand both report having met with a group of six men, all heavily armed. And the farmhand recognized them as men from the farm of Armad Beard. See, we knew that was going to be a problem. Humiliating Armad in his own home and then leaving him alive? I'm going to say it's a tactical error. Wait, okay, but you you objected to treating him poorly and now you're advocating killing in cold blood? I feel like there's a little bit of inconsistency here. Well, I'm not saying kill him in cold blood. Fight the guy fairly. If that's what's important to you. That's the rules, right? But don't just leave him behind you to set up ambushes and hunt you down. Okay, well, I mean, there's no sense crying over spilt curds, Andy. 
Uh, Ale's looking forward. uh, While he's eating dinner that night and trying to focus on his next move, he's distracted by a sick woman lying on a bench near the fire. Oh, yes. Yeah, this is Helga, Thorvin's daughter. And she's suffering from a sickness and has recently taken a turn for the worse. This is Mm -hmm. exactly like a video game. You know how, like, in a video game, you go on a quest, but on on your quest... You get this little side, yeah, all these little things. You meet people, and the story expands. That's exactly mm-hmm. what's happening here. So it turns out that the family, in the hope of helping her, turned to a neighbor's son who carved a set of magical runes onto a whalebone, and that is under her blankets. Right. And when Ale hears about this, well, he springs into action. No. No, he doesn't. He finishes his dinner, he wipes his mouth, and he lingers a bit over his drink. <laughs> Yes, but uh, then he springs into action. Okay. Ale has the girl moved from her bed, and he finds the whalebone. He's clearly not pleased by what he sees. He, he, he looks at the runes, and then he shaves them off of the whalebone, and he throws the scrapings into the fire, suggesting that the, the, the part of the whalebone mm-hmm. that's been touched by these runes is tainted in some way. And then he burns the entire bone and has the bed coverings aired out. And then he cuts new runes, and while he's whittling away, he mutters a verse. No man should carve runes unless he can read them well. Many a man goes astray around those dark letters. On the whalebone, I saw ten secret letters carved. From them, the linden tree took her long heart. Mm. That's a great verse. Mm. And I, I'm not going to write this paper, but I'm going to give out a title. Anybody want a title? Here it is. Have a title. Those Dark Letters, Runes in the Sagas of the Icelanders. Huh? Boom. <laughs> and you could, you know, after the colon, after the you know colon, what? you could do whatever you want. Given this is an audio medium, uh, no one but me could see how very, very chuffed with yourself you looked when you said that. <laughs> It's a good You're one. Very pleased about that. That's a good that. title. If somebody doesn't write that paper, I'll be very upset. Uh huh. All right. <laughs> so obviously, runes uh, have significant power in mm-hmm. Ale's mind, um, and clearly, here's evidence: the effect on the girl. Right. Yep. He places the new rune carvings under the girl's pillow, and guess what, John? Mm-hmm. She immediately begins to recover. You shocked now, me. She's still very weak from her illness, but she's out of danger, and her parents are so grateful to Ale that they offer to restock his supplies, and Thorvin and his son Helgi offer to escort Ale through the next stretch of the journey to Varmland. That is how you go on a quest. There you go. So now a couple of things are happening here. Uh, First of all, Ale is showing off his uh, pseudo-magical abilities and his rune knowledge. Mm Mm-hmm. This isn't the first time we've seen him show this skill. Yeah. Now, remember, uh, Queen Gunnild tried to kill Ale once by poisoning his drink at Atloybard's farm. Mm-hmm. But uh, Ale carved runes and smeared blood onto the drinking horn, and it burst apart. But this is a little different. Ale isn't just performing a quick bit of runic spellcraft. He's making a professional assessment of poor quality rune work by an amateur. Right? He's diagnosing that bad work as prolonging and even worsening the patient's illness and then using both magical and mundane care to heal the girl. So is your point that Ale's using magic for medical purposes here? Well, my point is that he's a masterful rune worker. 
Oh, indeed. Now, yes. In that episode with Gunild Shattered Horn, we said that the saga, it gives us these hints that Ael would have learned both magic and rune work from his foster mother, Thorgird Brack. R.I.P. But that was a long time ago. Well, he studies at night. Oh, okay. That's one theory. Before going uh, to bed. I mean, he's also had a lot of downtime in Iceland here and there, if we're going to look for that sort of thing. Maybe, maybe. It also seems to be a natural ability, a sort of outgrowth of his skill with words, right? The poet yeah. is... Yeah, the two right? things are linked for sure. Uh, and runes having mystical or even talismanic qualities, that's an established trope in saga literature. But it's still a good point. I mean, beyond his childhood training, Ail never seems to study runes, at least not extensively. But just like his natural skill with poetry, which he we already saw he had as a three-year-old, Ail has a natural feel for the power of runes. And again, he can immediately recognize that the runes under this young woman's pillow, mm-hmm. or her mattress, or wherever they were, they're badly done. Right. And that's interesting to me, because it suggests that Ale can recognize the intent behind them. Mm-hmm. Right. This wasn't a deliberate attempt to sicken her. It's an incompetent try at doing something else. Almost like he he you know picked it up, and it, it, it's supposed to say, heal this girl, H-E-A-L, but it says H-E-E-L, and he's like, oh, look at what you did there. Hey. <laughs> Underlined circle SP. Right. 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 Make her now, a bad guy in the WWE. Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly she's uh, her beard got darker, and she's wearing sunglasses. Right. Fair enough. That was a reference to Hulk Hogan mm-hmm. turning into Hollywood I, I got Hogan. The, I got oh, the okay. reference. I'm just not you got identifying it. Because yeah, he darkened his beard. Yeah, I got it. I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. I'm, I'm smelling what you're cooking. Oh, that's that's much later. So, <laughs> speaking of later, later on in the saga, we learned the backstory here. Was that a good transition? That was effortless. Oh, I know. Smooth as silk. There Fair is enough. a. Na- it turns out that there's a neighbor kid who fell in love with Thorvin's daughter, but she refused a proposal of marriage. Then he took advantage of her initial illness by claiming he could carve healing runes, but instead. He actually carved love runes, or he tried to anyway, to make her return his love. Yeah, it's gross. Uh, Yeah, This is a literary trope with a lot of different manifestations, uh, using magic, trickery, even demonic interference to overcome the resistance of a desired person. Mm -hmm. We can have a whole other conversation about this. I mean, everything from hagiographies to Fablio get involved with versions of that story. Definitely, yeah. Hagiography is literature that is written about saints, and Fablio are stories that are very comedic and often kind of uh, kind of dirty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they work blue. Uh, but the the point is that this trope of overcoming the will of the intended Wu Yi is pretty widespread. Uh, I mean, hell, we still see this story play out in movies and TV pretty frequently now, mm-hmm. uh, and it's always kind of gross. Uh, but here. The story never gets to that point of actually overcoming the daughter's resistance. Well, no, because it turns out the neighbor's kid is as incompetent at carving runes as he is at wooing. He messes up the runes and ends up nearly killing her. Right. And it's uh, fortunate that Ale comes along and recognizes all this by examining the badly done inscription on the whalebone. And even more fortunately, he knows how to destroy the inscription in a way that will save the daughter. And once Mm -hmm. again, he has reason to be grateful to Thorgard Brack. And it's paying dividends, by the way. Remember that Ale was sent to this farm as part of a plan to get him killed. Thorvin's not likely to raise a hand against him now because he saved his daughter. Sure, Uh, but we never had any evidence, we should be clear. We didn't know that Thorfinn was part of that plan. 
Right? It, it seemed more like the king's men expected that the weather or Armad would kill Aelor's men, or you had the idea that maybe it's just about sort of seeding the countryside with news that Aeol is functioning as the king's envoy. Mm-hmm. Um, Thorfinn, though, does seem like a pretty decent sort of guy. Uh, and you're right. I mean, Thorfinn and his wife love their daughter, and Aeol's rune magic has brought her back from death's door. He's their new favorite person. Right, and, and that's great for Aeol. Mm-hmm. Not only are they now charter members of the fairly, very small Scott Grimson fan club, <laughs> but Thorvin's offer to escort Ale means that Ale now has a local man who knows the area to guide him safely through any ambushes. So he's likely right. to reach his target. Yeah. So ambushes like the ones that Armad Beard is probably setting up in Ale's path. Yeah. Remember those six armed men who wandered past the farm earlier? Mm-hmm. Well, Thorvin believes that that's just one of several ambush groups who've been sent to find and kill Ale for the mutilation of Armod's face. And so when Ale leaves the next morning, he's leading a party of eight men. Himself, his three companions, Thorfinn, Thorfinn's son, Helgi, and two of their farmhands. Yeah, I don't get used to those inflated numbers, though. Oh, that sounds ominous. Oh, well, oh yeah. Well, I, I didn't mean that at all. They're, just, they're not going to be together for long. Still a little ominous. Well, how's this for ominous? Uh, Six of Armad's men are, in fact, lying in wait for Ale, only a few miles from Thorfinn's farm. But when they see Ale's eight men, they lose their nerve and run away without a fight. Oh, see, that wasn't that wasn't (laughs) even scary. Yeah, they're not they're not great at ambush. So uh, (laughs) that's sad. So at this point, Ale decides that he'd rather just fight these guys and get it over with. Right. But the ambushers clearly aren't prepared to attack a force that outnumbers them. So so he insists on sending Thorvin's group of four back to the farm. There's a fair, although he does say, like, as he's doing this, he's saying, like, there's no problem. Yeah, there's no ambush. Right. Yeah. But he doesn't believe that. They they all they they all saw these guys run away. So Ale's trying to lure them into attacking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't want to deal with them, you know, being out there somewhere. He'd rather just fight them. Yeah, and and realistically, Thorvin's not looking for a reason to stay away from home. So he's like, okay, I won't right. fight for you. Right. And he goes he goes home. Right. Now Thorfinn's not completely abandoning Ale. Right. Uh, we'll see him again in a while. So, all right, Ale's back to traveling light. Just himself, three close but anonymous friends. And a small arsenal of weapons. <laughs> well, if Ale's looking for a fight, then he's in luck. Because another group of six men appear in the woods, and Ale's party recognizes them as coming from Armod's place, and attacks them at once. Yeah, and I'm sorry to say this isn't much of a fight. Uh, Ale kills two men in his first rush, and the other four just run away. It's really more of a sortie than a battle. Oh, fancy. Thank you. But... But it's also a confirmation that Armod Beard is not happy about his mm. recent humiliation. Uh, something about getting, you know, your face filled with vomit uh, just right. turns one off. Right. And he's uh, he's looking for revenge. I, I'm i fascinated that you, you said that as if it was a revelation that he's not happy about what happened at his farm. <laughs> <laughs> what part of what happened should he be happy about? Uh, but a uh, quick question. Are we sure this was a different group? No. So far, we've had three or four independent sightings of a group of six armed men, but it could easily be the same group of guys every time. Yeah, but even if this one group's been eliminated, there's probably others out there, at least. Thorvin predicted multiple ambushes, and he seems to know Armod pretty well. All right, so uh, ambush team six has been scattered, but Ale doesn't know how many more enemies are hiding in the countryside. 
So he's going to need another resting place before nightfall. And this is now the third night of farm hopping on the way to the King of Varmland, or yeah. the sub-King of Varmland. But uh, there isn't really another option. The snowstorm has left the entire forest frozen and covered in drifts, and even Ale doesn't much care for the idea of freezing his toes overnight in the open. Fortunately, after a long day's hike, they reach another farm around nightfall. Right, and this is the farm of Alf the Wealthy. Willie! No, 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 no. Uh, Alf the Wealthy is an elderly and misanthropic landowner who only keeps a minimal farm crew around because he can't stand other people. It sounds like your kind of guy, John. Oh, silence. It actually turns out he's Ale's kind of guy. Uh, the two of them, both antisocial, both kind of cranky, turn out to be kindred spirits of a sort, and they stay up late chatting. This is why you like Ale so much, because you and well, Ale are so, I mean, aside from being, you know, you're not a violent fellow, nor could you beat anyone in a nor, fight. Nor a handsome one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where you, you and Ale kind of right. line up. We both have the same iron gray hair. What we same have attitude, same, you know, propensity for anger. There you go. Uh, well, Ale has now found himself a kindred spirit, so maybe it's not too late for me. Uh, <laughs> Alf, in particular, by the way, is just a fountain of words. I mean, he's been alone for a very long time. Uh, and that's a boon to Ale, because Alf is very well informed about the dealings between the Norwegian kings and Earl Arnvid of Varmland. Very convenient. But... His opinion is that Arvid is a nasty piece of work, which we already sort of knew. Right. I mean, Ail's making a third attempt to collect taxes from Arvid, and the last two tax collectors died mysteriously. Mysteriously with quotes around it. Uh-huh. <laughs> it doesn't take Inspector Clouseau to figure out that Arvid uh, is not the uh, friendly sort. Inspector Clouseau? Really? I stand by my references. Uh, yeah, good for you. Investigations. Yeah. What do you want me? Uh, uh, I feel like she there, was a, there was a there was a Sherlock Holmes reference, just kind of low hanging fruit. No, what um, about uh, what about a, a, a Columbo? I there can't you go, do a an Columbo? impression of him, but do I am squinting. Sure, I got one eye open, and uh, 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 you see, oh I boy, got the one. No, and uh, no, no, Andy, Andy, as your friend, I'm going to say, do not leave that attempt at an impression in the episode. <laughs> I said I'm not going to... the worst Columbo I, I've ever heard. I, I said I can't do a Columbo, so that... Uh, yeah, well, accurate, me. accurate. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, so... All right, so fair enough, Alf's not offering any real news, but I mean, he's still... He's offering a warm place to sleep and a night of good conversation. And he's not trying to get Ale so drunk and, that he dies. Right. And for an antisocial guy... Ale does like to have someone to confide in. That's kind of Armbjorn's uh, yep. role, right? Yep. And, and the two of them thoroughly enjoy their hangout session. I mean, they're broing down hardcore. Yep. Yes, they are. And in the morning before they leave, Alf asks Ale to stop back at his place on the way home. And so Ale gives Alf a fur coat as a gift. Right. There's a nice moment there where uh, Alf, who's this slightly wizened old man, holds up this massive coat, which belonged to Ale, and says, mm-hmm. it's very nice. I, I can have it made into a fur cape. Yes. See, here, this is a, I just talked to my students about this moment uh, that we haven't gotten here yet, but I was trying yeah. to describe to them just how big and monstrous Ale truly is. Yep. And uh, we, we often forget as we read the saga just kind of what a massive figure yep. Ale is. This coat that he wears is big enough to be turned into a, a, a huge cape. For this, uh, this, yeah, this old man. Right, a full Very body cool. covering. Yeah. No, there's a lot of ale. There is, yes. Uh, in more ways than one. 
Um, all right, so Ale leaves his friend uh, half smothered in a pile of fur coat, and he gets back on the road once more. <laughs> and at the end of one more day's travel, he and his three companions make it to the home of Earl Arnvid himself. Finally. So, Ale's been on the road for close to a week, pushing through snowstorms, fighting off ambushes, and, I don't know, in general, having a hard time. Uh, nearly vomiting himself to death. All right. Uh, well, but now his mission's over. He's made it. Earl Arnvid receives Ale's company with the, the respect due to a representative of the king, and Ale spends some time visiting and enjoying being in a warm building. Well, he gave away his coat. Well, I suspect he had more than one. Well, I, I hope so, yes. <laughs> Ale actually doesn't waste much time. He shows his tokens to Arnvid and insists on receiving not just the tribute for this year, but all the tribute that has gone unpaid since Arnvid took charge in Varmland. This is a bold request. It is, to say the least. But Arnvid's not impressed. I already paid the previous tribute, though I don't know what the envoys did with it after that, whether they handed it over to the king or ran away with it themselves. Since you're carrying tokens to prove the king sent you, I'll pay the tribute he's entitled to. But I won't be responsible for the way you happen to look after it. Yeah, now, to be clear here, when you say this is a bold claim... This is very clearly Ale accusing Arnvid of having stolen back the tribute after he gave it to the envoys. Oh, yes. And so there's at least a heavy implication here. What's that? I just said yes. Yeah. I mean, so there's also a heavy implication here that he murdered those envoys. Oh, absolutely. Uh, he's he's threatening Ale right here. Yeah, yeah. And not he's not uh, being subtle about it. No, I mean, this is one of those moments when Ale proves how unpredictable he is, right? I mean, Arnvid's absolutely taunting him here, right? Lowballing the amount of tribute to be handed over and insinuating that Ale might steal the tribute or, for some other reason, be unable to bring it safely back to the king. Yeah. And as readers, we might well expect, knowing Ale as we do, we might well expect Ale to start wrecking the place or at least to start eyeing the curds and beer suggestively. <laughs> uh, but he does nothing. He just shrugs it off and continues to enjoy the Earl's hospitality. Ale's turned a new leaf. How nice. Yeah, that's what he's done. So we can fast forward to Ale's departure. The Earl hands over the tribute, which he pays in a combination of silver and furs. And once Ale sees that Arnvid doesn't intend to pay the previous year's debt, he he does say something about that. Yeah. Well, we'll give the king the tribute we've received from you, but... You ought to realize that this is worth much less than the king lays claim to here. And that's not counting the fact that he feels that you ought to pay compensation for the lives of his envoys, since uh, people are saying you had them killed. That rumor is untrue. Okay, but I mean, just to be clear, that rumor is totally true. Completely true. And Ale yes. knows it, but there's not much more to be said. So he leaves, and the second he's gone, Arnvid leans over to his two right-hand men, who are brothers, both named Ulf, an imaginative sure. father. Right. That big man Ale, I think it will cause us big trouble if he makes it back to the king. I can imagine the impression he'll convey about me to the king, judging from the baseless accusations he threw around here about me killing the king's men. You two go after him. Kill them all and stop them spreading such slander to the king. Take plenty of men with you. Uh, this is just amazing. Uh, what a Hollywood villain moment. I know. 
this guy is spreading lies about me killing people, so kill him so he'll stop lying about yeah. me. <laughs> he, he keeps saying that I'm stealing the tribute and killing the men who have taken it. So go kill him and take the tribute for me, please. Go do that thing he suggested. <laughs> it's a great idea. Arvid is... he. I, I think he's a scenery-chewing bad guy. He's like mm. a great Bond villain. He's got the yep. twin Ulfs lurking behind his chair. Right. All he needs is that 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 Blofeld cat in the lap situation. Yeah, I mean, I know we say this kind of thing all the time, but why isn't this a movie? I know. I want someone like Alan Rickman playing Arnvid. Well, that's going to be hard. You mean the late great Alan Rickman? Well, that's why I said someone like him. I see. Uh, Tom Hiddleston, maybe, or or a Skarsgård. Any Skarsgård. Any scars got will do, absolutely. But uh, I guess if we're going in, the, in that direction, my my choice of the nasally voice maybe not <laughs> not the best I mean, choice. Uh, so for the casting that's call, your, I that's switch. your uh, that's, that's your choice as an actor. I feel like I might want to switch it up. It's a little campy. Uh, oh, by the way, the uh, the Ulfs now take Arnvid's instruction entirely seriously. Right? He says, "Take plenty of men with you." They bring thirty armed men with them to hunt Ale down. Well, Ale's got so many men with him; they've got to be ready. Yeah, three. <laughs> so now Ail's going to try to cross that same snow-covered landscape that he barely survived on the way there. Mm-hmm. But now he's got assassin ambush squads from Armod waiting in front of him and a small army of Arnvid's killers lurking behind him. Right, I mean, suddenly Ail's starring in a Norwegian remake of The Warriors. Ail, <laughs> come out to play, yay. Oh my god. I'm so sorry. Part 41, Running the Gauntlet. All right, Fast and Furious fans, the race is on. (laughs) (laughs) All both of you who also listen to this podcast. Yeah, you know, make a good point. Fast and Furious fans probably don't (laughs) listen to our podcast. And Saga Thing, although who knows? If you're a fan of both Fast and Furious and Saga Thing, write in, let us know. Yeah. And explain yourself. Yeah, what? What? <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> well, you know, we're talking about medieval action stories. There Fast you go. and Furious is a modern saga of cars jumping and flipping. Careful, you're going you're gonna to strain yourself reaching like that. Yeah, it hurts already. I feel like yeah. I pulled something. Yeah, you should have stretched beforehand. Yeah, I've, I've never actually seen a Fast and Furious movie. Anywho, Ale and his friends are working their way back to the southwest. Mm-hmm. Through the snow-choked forests that lead back to King Hauken's strongholds. Yeah, meanwhile, the various groups that want him dead are racing around, trying to track him down and get ahead of him to lay ambushes. Mm-hmm. And most of them know the area better than Ale does. Yeah, we're actually told that the Ulf brothers, they know every trail in the forest. Yeah, they have no trouble slipping past Ale. Uh, they find a place in the woods ahead of him where there are only two, two paths to choose from. Uh, one is a short trail, but it requires climbing a steep slope and walking along an exposed ridge. Mm-hmm. The other is less exposed, but much longer and goes through some frozen marshlands. You take the high road and I'll take the low road and I'll get to ale before <laughs> you. <laughs> I was actually waiting to see whether you knew the rest of the line and you managed to dodge it by using ale's name. Well done. Yeah. Well played. Yeah. Uh, so the Ulfs, uh, once they finish their duet, uh, put 15 <laughs> men on each route and wait for Ale to come to one of them. 
Yeah, they're gonna have to wait overnight then, because Ale stops at Alf the Misanthrope's farm, and they enjoy another evening chat together, and it's all quite pleasant. Mm -hmm. Now, the visit itself, that's pleasant, good times, but as they're eating breakfast in the morning, Ulf says to Ale, he's old, right? Yep. You're making an early start, Ale, but I, I wouldn't advise you to rush your journey. Be careful, because I expect people to be waiting in ambush for you in the forest. I do not have any men who would be any help to send with you, but I want to invite you to stay here with me until I can tell you that it's safe to go through the forest. Whoa, that's nothing but nonsense. I shall... I'll go my way as I planned. Oh, Ale. Well, if you see tracks in the snow, come back here at once, because no one has come through here from the east unless it's men sent to go after you. Yeah, that's not great. Um, nope. Yeah, it's all well and good to call this nonsense, but Ulf clearly has Ale thinking about things, because mm -hmm. later on, as he's readying himself to go, Ale says to Ulf, uh, How many of them do you think there are, uh, assuming what you say is right? He's just, he's such a hyper-masculine douche that he can't even admit, like, he can't even ask for, like, legit help. Right. He's got to always he's, couch. He's, he's clearly a little nervous. Yeah, whatever. All right. I, I, I saw the tracks myself. Human tracks, which is interesting. Human tracks, not well, animal right. tracks, right? Right. So I just love well, the no detail. Horses. horses, yes, could be. But the, yeah, just great attention to detail in this dialogue. Human tracks that extended into the forest. There must have been a lot of men together. Hmm. Well, we're not at their mercy, even if they have a man or two on us. Or a manatee on us, as it might be. Uh, I, for one, am a big fan of manatees. I am a big fan of the manatee, you know? Uh, <laughs> love them. Uh, Ail and his three men now head off, and it's not long before they do find that large group of tracks in the snow. But Ail refuses to turn back. Hmm. Well, doesn't surprise me people have been traveling this road because it's the road everyone takes. This is what we call bravado. Mm -hmm. We can assume that, I, I mean, Ale knows better, right? <laughs> I must. think so. Uh, and if he weren't already convinced there's something afoot, uh, a little later, they find the spot at a fork in the road where that large number of tracks splits into two equal-sized groups. <laughs> and that's, uh, I mean, there's no denying, this is starting to develop a very ambushy vibe. Yeah. So now Ale and his companions take off their cloaks and overclothes to free up their arms. And Ale decides he needs a bit more protection. And so he... Well, he he takes a page from the book of Ingolf Thorstensen from Vatnsdala Saga. That's yes, what he does. Yes, he does. It's stone armor time. Of course <laughs> it is. It's been, it's been far too long since we've had one of these. Ale takes a slab of rock and some rope and ties the slab over his chest and stomach. And then he wraps the rope all the way around his body to help protect his vital organs in a fight. And then he and his men choose the shorter trail, the one over the mountain ridge. I just want to point out that where's Ale getting a slab of rock walking through a landscape that's covered in several feet of snow? Yeah, just, you know, well, he's walking along a mountain ridge, right? So I'm okay. assuming that there's, there's, um. Okay, he's uh, pulling it off the side of the mountain. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay. so the All snow's right. not covering everything, and so there's right. exposed rocks. The other thing I I'll really like that. about this is we've seen this kind of thing enough that either it's just a, a, a 
a motif in the sagas. Mm -hmm. Or people in the Viking Age and beyond really would tie rocks to themselves as cheap armor. I think I think there's actually one of the Hurstwick videos actually shows somebody trying to fight that way. How did it go? Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> well, now, so you which suggested it was not good. You've um, ruined my tomorrow when I'm supposed to be prepping for classes. I'm going to be searching that out. I've got the videos. I'll look through them. Uh, well, I but I, I know how to search things on the internet, John. No, I actually own the videos. I, I oh, you own? I, I buy them. Oh, not just the on eight tracks. <laughs> Well, that's odd. How do you watch them then? I know. <laughs> uh, so, but as as that suggests, as it suggests that he's pulling this thing off the side of the hill, this path goes up a very steep hillside, and it yes. involves a difficult climb to reach the ridge summit. Yes. And Ale has just strapped a huge rock to his torso in front. Sure, yeah. Should we even ask how this climb is going to work exactly? Get to know Ale, John. He's pretty amazing. This is nothing. <laughs> that's fair enough. Uh, so all four men in Ale's party have axes, shields, helmets, spears, and Ale's got his swords, of course. Mm-hmm. They're pretty well equipped. Yeah. Although if this is a movie, Ale's not wearing a helmet because the hero never wears right. a helmet. Right. But the Ulf on his trail, I should re- remind you, he has four times the men. Mm-hmm. And they're armed too. And among the things they're armed with are yeah, bows. Oh. You know, fighting from a distance. Sure. Uh, and Ale quickly learns when he approaches the crest of the ridge. Seven men suddenly pop up behind them on the trail and begin firing arrows at them. Yeah, Ale and his men spin around to face the threat, getting their shields up and seeking cover. And that's when the other eight men in this ambush appear at the top of the ridge and start throwing heavy rocks down on them. If you're going to set up an ambush, this is how you do it. This is good. Right. Yeah, it's a good ambush. Uh, the, the elves don't mess around. Uh, Ale and his men take a couple of injuries right away, and Ale realizes their position is hopeless for a defense. He tells the others to break for a nearby bluff and try to draw fire, and he ch- turns and charges uphill toward the rock throwers. <laughs> oh, he's so, he's amazing. I mean, what a setup. But this is where the author kind of lets us down. Yeah, he does. He decides that we'd be bored by the story of how Ale kills these eight guys. We'd be bored how Ale charges up the side of this mountain yeah. and climbs up a mountain. These men throwing rocks at him. Uh-huh. Yeah. The the entirety of this part of the battle is well, I I'll just read it to you. Do you got time? Okay. Sure, I think we can probably squeeze it in. Okay, let's see. Just be patient here. Without describing the blows that were exchanged, the clash ended with Ale killing them all. Was it too long? Boo. Boo. I mean, the last stand on the cliff's edge is a classic. Yeah. This is our author's chance to challenge Gisli's last stand at the end of his saga. Mm-hmm. And instead, he just decides to wave it on by. Well, except Gisli's saga is written later. So maybe the Gisli yeah, saga no, I, author read it and was like, oh, that's disappointing. I know. I, right. I can do better. Uh, yeah. No, I, I understand Gisli is later, but I'm speaking in terms of general epic quality. Sure. Besides, you don't think our author knew the legend of Gisli Sirson? Okay. Well, in any case, yeah, this is a real disappointment. But fortunately, the fight's not over. Ale finishes killing the last of these men and then runs over to the top of the bluff where the others are trapped by the other seven ambushers, remember? Right. Now, if only there were a large number of heavy rocks up here, say, conveniently stacked up and ready to throw down on helpless victims. Well, that's exactly what there is. 
Of course. What are the odds? Uh, and now the rocks are being thrown by a thoroughly annoyed Scott Grimson with all of his borderline superhuman muscle behind them. Mm-hmm. Three of the attackers are killed by the crushing rocks, and the last four break and run away. See, that's that's a little bit more satisfying. I mean, it still lacks the excitement of the duels in the last episode. Mm-hmm. But in fairness to Ale and our author, you use different moves when you're fighting half a dozen people than when you only have to be worried about one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's been a while since we've uh, shoehorned a Princess Bride reference. Well, I try to use them with appropriate deference. (laughs) (laughs) And we need to get back to the fight. Severance? No? (laughs) No, no. No, no. Just just go back to the fight. (laughs) So, Ale's got 11... (laughs) Severance. (laughs) Out of context completely. Anyway, oh god, Ailes got just a shout out rhyming words. Why don't you? Oh, give me a, a word that rhymes with deference, aside from reference. I think we already did reference. D- yeah, orange. No, don't 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 leave this in there. This is just this is just garbage. Oh, it's this, this is, is what, this is what this is what the people come for, John. Is this it? This is it. Oh my god, you're the one who wants, who's complaining about how long this is. Well then, let's get back to it. Ailes got 11 dead ambushers and four men running away. He and his men are bruised and injured, but all alive. This well, is going great. Yeah, but those four guys running away are a problem. Remember, there's more than one group of ambushers out here in the forest. Now, I mean, the author doesn't actually say whether one of the Ulfs was in this group of attackers, but the smarter Ulf is definitely with the second group. Which one's the smarter Ulf? Uh, the one that isn't dead yet. Oh, yes. Uh, Ale and his men get their horses and ride down the other side of the ridge. But when they return to ground level, the second group of ambushers is waiting on the trail. And they've got the survivors of the first group with them. And one ulf. Well, at least one. There's two ulfs, no waiting. <laughs> and this ulf has another plan. A uh, cunning plan? Uh, well, we'll have to see. Mm. Their men split into two groups. One to attack Ale's group from the front while the other moves around them in the forest and attacks from behind. Splitting their forces. Sure, it worked so well last time. Why not try it again? It's actually a good tactic. You're trying to surround the enemy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of how you do things. But yeah. And to their advantage, there are more of them this time. And mm-hmm. they're all going to attack at once. It's 19 against 4. Yeah, and we should say Ale's already been through a tough fight. Yeah. And his men his men are totally exhausted from all the standing around and staying out of Ale's way they had to do. <laughs> yes. Uh, meanwhile, the Ulfs and their men are mostly fresh. By any measure, this should be an even more desperate fight for survival than the last one. Right. And once again, our author decides to shield our sensitive eyes from the carnage. Yeah. You know, it, it, it is odd that this saga which was so gleeful about the bloodshed in the last chapters. Yeah. I mean, Ale ripping out Otley's throat with his teeth was on the more graphic end of the violent spectrum for the sagas. And then and then we get we get this. We get this. Uh, well, for that matter, I mean, I have to say our author pulled no punches in the Barfarama scene in our mods either. Oh, definitely not. Uh, I think there's something else going on here, but uh, we need to finish this fight first. All right. I'm, I'm curious to see what you think about this. Uh, but okay. So Ale's men take on eight men while Ale charges the larger group himself. Mm-hmm. He kills several of them in the initial rush, and then when the others fall back a few steps in surprise, he pursues them, 
giving them t- no, no time to regroup, really. In moments, he's got them on the run, and he cuts them down one by one until all 11 of them are dead. Uh-huh. And, uh, and Ulf, or Ulfs, are among the dead. And then he wheels back around to the other fight, where he and his men drive the enemy back. Three more of those are killed, and the last five flee. Mm-hmm. A 30-man ambush, and only five of them escape. And Ale's group of four, are s- they're all still alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, although all four of them are injured. And mm-hmm. Ale, as we're told, has taken a lot of wounds, but none of them are life-threatening. Yeah, so about this. Uh, tactically, there's nothing new about Ale using a rush to throw his opponent on their back foot. Right. Remember, he did the same thing to Yot the Pale. Mm-hmm. Right? Kept pursuing him and wouldn't let him get his feet planted. Uh, okay, yes, this is the same tactic, but with 11 men instead of one. John... That's a little hard to believe, don't you think? I, I mean, I suppose it depends on the metal of the men Ale is charging, really. Uh, but I, I, yes, I mean, I think it does strain the reader's disbelief. And for my money, that's partly why this saga author suddenly gets bashful about describing the fight. Ale is officially in the realm of the superhuman now, and it fits awkwardly into this narrative. Uh, now, having said that, I mean, Ale is something more than merely human. Right? We've talked about his ancestry several times. Right? He's got the troll and werewolf and berserker blood in his veins. So maybe what's happening is that Ale's essentially in a semi-berserk at this point, where we're meant to understand that he is, but he doesn't lose complete control. Well, when we talked about the fight with Otley, we said that Ale was at his height, right? He was mm-hmm. a poet, warrior, and monster. All of those things coming together in one package at that moment. But even if that's the case, it doesn't explain why the author avoids the details of the battle. Um, okay, so what do you think? I, I mean, I'm not sure. I haven't thought deeply about it, but if, I, if, you, mm-hmm. if you're pressing me to tell you why I think the author's not being detailed here, uh, I, I would say it's not unusual for a saga author to gloss over the details of a battle and mm-hmm. to just report numbers or even avoid numbers. We see mm-hmm. this all the time when reading the sagas. In one scene, the author will offer us a vivid description of each blow capturing the dramatic tension with the ebb and flow of the battle. And it's brilliant, and we love that stuff. But that seems to occur most often in one-on-one fights, John. Mm. When we've got groups of attackers, things tend to get a lot more general. I suspect that's because the author would have to account for not only the action itself, but the names of the characters involved, and perhaps even if you know how saga writing works, you need to know a little bit of the backstory on why each of those people are actually there. It's just, it's too much. It's unwieldy. Mm. Plus, it, it, it's far more impressive to say that Ale was attacked by 19 men and he single-handedly dispatched 11 of them. So that's right. what I think is going on here. I mean, I think it's it's a little bit, um, I don't know that we can say that, that authors are necessarily concerned with every single participant in a battle. We sometimes do get those like mowed oh, yeah. down farmhands and that kind of thing. But yeah, I think uh, we're not, we're looking at an author here who, is interested in uh, certain enemies of Ailes, mm-hmm. like Otley the Short, who gets you know gets a really good scene. Uh, these men ultimately aren't that important. No, I mean from our perspective, from the perspective of the story, Arnvid is important, but the Ulfs and their men are they're they're just an example of Arnvid's determination not to let Ail get away. Yeah, right. Ultimately, we don't care about them, and so a long and involved description of the battle would be narratively pointless, but it would be cool. It would be cool. But I'll, and I'll cool give you this. counts. 
Look at look at the Battle of Harvestfjord. How much action mm-hmm. do we actually get in that battle? I mean, if we put together all the different saga accounts, quite a bit, but uh, no one of them is that much detail. I'm talking about Ale Saga. There's oh, nothing okay, really. Yes. There's nothing really there, right? Right. Right. Except for Bard dying. That's mm-hmm. the only thing that we really get emphasis. Well, and that and happens obviously after that, the battle. It's yeah, not and that's really. important because it moves the story along and sets up sure. the the transition for Thorolf and all that mm-hmm. stuff, right? So in these bigger scenes, these bigger moments that are actually there's potential for really cool descriptions of battle. Yep. The author's not invested in that because it's not important to the lives of these individuals, mm-hmm. um, right? To the people who he actually cares about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's that makes sense. Uh, so. Uh, we'll return to Ale and his friends uh, in the snow covered with blood all around them. Uh, Ale patches himself and his friends up as best he can, and they spend the rest of the day on guard until they reach Thorfinn's farm on the far side of the woods. Yes, and this is the Thorfinn whose daughter Ale saved from an illness and a bad rune job. Yes. What? A bad, I'm sorry, rune what? Mm-mm-mm. Nope. Uh, anyway, uh, Ale declares that he will stay for several days at Thorfinn's while he and his men rest and recover some of their strength. That's probably smart, given what just happened. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, the five survivors of the ambush party return sheepishly to Arnvid, where they have to explain that they lost 25 men uh-huh. against Ale and four others, and right. they didn't manage to kill anyone. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be brutally awkward. Yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, the Ulfs managed to avoid having to explain themselves since they're both dead. <laughs> Good for them. Now, Arnvid. Well, first, there's probably a very long pause while he counts to ten. Uh-huh. But then Arnvid says, I could have put up with you suffering heavy losses if you had at least killed the Norwegians. But mm. now, when they go west and tell the news of the king... And tell the news to the king of Norway, we may expect the harshest imaginable treatment from them, you boobs. Well, yeah. I mean, you killed two sets of envoys and tried to kill the third. It's not great, man. No. Uh, but we should also point out that when he says the Norwegians, he's not indulging in our favorite game of uh, kill the Norwegian companions. No, no. In context, it's clear he's lumping ale in with the Norwegians, which makes right. sense. Since Ale was there as an official representation of the Norwegian king, and he has no reason to suspect otherwise, right? Uh, and Arnvid's absolutely right, by the way. Uh, he's he's bitten himself off a big sticky lump of pain. Uh, but first, we have to get Ale the rest of the way back to friendly territory. Yeah, and there's actually not that much more to tell. While Ale rests at Thorfinn's, the gossip goes around Varmland that Ale and his three men faced a thirty-man ambush and killed most of it. Yeah, and that's the kind of news that spreads fast. Yeah, that's good news. It spreads as far as Armod Beard's house, who decides that maybe discretion is the better part of valor this time. Uh-huh. And so he calls his men back to the farm. There will be no more attempts to attack Ale on his way home. Yeah, that's probably for the best, because by this time, Ale is in no mood for anyone's nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, this whole quest has been about everyone trying to get him killed, and he's just about done putting up with it. Yeah. So uh, he leaves Thorvin's place on friendly terms and then stomps all the way back to Thorsten Thorsen's farm at Vik. Presumably with the wildlife scrambling to get out of the way. Yeah, probably, yeah. Uh, Ale and the other men spend the rest of the winter at Thorsten's, and it takes them the entire winter to fully recover from their injuries. Meanwhile, Thorsten sends a messenger to King Halkin about what happened in Varmland, and as Arnvid predicted, the king is not happy about it. No, he isn't. 
That summer, Hauken takes a large force into Varmland and just wrecks the place. Uh-huh. Then he runs Arnvid out of the province completely and shakes down every single farmer he thinks owes him money. <laughs> and then he puts a new Earl in charge and takes hostages from that guy's family to ensure that he has no more trouble from these people. Yeah, I mean, it's you get this image of, you know, a knock at the door and sort of a farmer just going to see who it is opening the door. And there's a there's a king standing there with an entire army behind him. Yeah. Holding his hand out and saying, taxes, please. Eldest son, please. uh Hauken is clearly also not in the mood for any more nonsense from the people of Varmland. No, he is not. He is, however, pleased with what Thorsten and Eil did for him. And he sends messengers back to Vik to tell Thorsten that he, Hauken, is now Thorsten's friend. And Thorsten can keep his holdings in Norway. Hallelujah. King Hauken, who will rule for such a long time, has established Thorstein as a, uh, maybe it's not going to, yeah. No, uh, but it does mean that Ale has once again proven his friendship to Arambjorn's family, Definitely. this time by securing the political future of Arambjorn's nephew. Which is great for Thorstein, but what about Ale? Uh, Ale's about had it with Norway. Uh, he outfits a merchant vessel to return to Iceland, loads it with goods, and gives his raiding ship to Thorsten as a parting gift. That's nice. He also sends word to his kinsman Thord in Arland, instructing him to sell all the farms that Ale now owns in Norway, if he can find buyers for them. So, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. All that fuss. Yep. All, all that trouble. Yep. Going back and forth from Iceland to Norway yep. to get these lands. He just yep. got them, and now he's like, hey, how much do you think we can get for him? Well... The land is worth money. Uh, and uh, Ale at this point is looking for cash in the barrelhead. I think it's clear to him that as much as there may have been a temporary thawing in Hauken's attitude, Ale is never going to find a warm and comfortable place for himself in Norway. Dude, There's if he always lingers, going to be that danger. If he lingers just a little bit longer, one of his best <laughs> friends is going <laughs> to... Everything's going to be just fine. I know, but he doesn't know. Yeah. Um, but he, he's really done with Norway, huh? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it looks that way. But he's not completely done yet in this saga. He's still got more ahead of him. But it's uh, it's waiting for him in Iceland. Well, this is one of the interesting things about Ale Saga. And one of the things that I, I mentioned to my students when I was setting up the saga. Yeah. That most of the sagas of the Icelanders take place in Iceland. And the main characters often travel to foreign countries um, and spend a little bit of time there. But they always come home. And the majority of the action takes place in in Iceland. Yep. For Ailsaga, it's the exact opposite. He spends very little time in Iceland, and the majority of the story actually takes place in Norway um, with little vignettes in England. Yep. Well, that's what we're going to be talking about in the final couple of episodes. He's going to get back to Iceland and try to settle down there mm-hmm. for his retirement. But Andy, before we leave this part of the saga, I was kind of hoping to circle back to our earlier talk uh, about Armad's farm. The farm where Ail got drunk and gouged out his host's eye? Yeah, and horked all over the place. Yeah, that one. I want to get back to the puddle of sick that Armad's servants had to spend a morning sprinkling wood chips and pink soap over. Is that a specific American reference, that Yeah, I don't actually know. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure how custodians outside the U.S. clean up student puke in schools. Do they still use that pink stuff? I, or is I that? Know, I mean, I, you went to elementary school, I'm assuming, in the late 70s when I was just being born. Right. But I also worked as a custodian in the early 90s. 
Oh, uh, and we were still using wood chips stuff. and pink soap. So yeah. Oh, wood chips and pink. But they use like kitty litter and stuff like that, don't they? Do they? Sawdust, saw. Yeah, just maybe it's a regional thing. Yeah, we used to use like. Yeah, if you're yeah. out there and you uh, anyway. clean up the puke of young children, uh, please contact oh, us. Don't, 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 don't. With your don't, 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 methodology, don't, oh my no. God. Look, do you want me to spice this up or not? I look. You want some personality in this podcast? <laughs> not really. If you no. do, then I'm your man. If you want <laughs> it to be just this humdrum, boring affair, then you know you could do it. Jokes about puke and wood you know, chips. You could do it by yourself. Oh my god, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh god damn you uh, <clears throat> alright well anyway this is the second time we've seen Ale drink too much after having been insulted with a meal of curds and both times end with vomiting and violence and poetry don't forget the poetry John uh, can't forget the poetry that's the best part so we're seeking the significance in the connection of violence beer ale mead and explosive regurgitation I mean, this is mostly just armchair scholarship. Uh, well, that is our wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, broadly speaking, yeah, we can make something out of that. It's been pointed out before that this saga has a lot of interwoven thematic strands. Oh, sure. Yeah, we talked about some of them when Ale bit out the throat of Otley the Short. The argument that Ale's mouth is a source of strength, for example. Uh, Deleuze made that argument. Right. Okay, so... Well, Thomas Hill has made the case for examining ale through a variety of fluids. Oh, that's gross. Yeah, I knew that was bad even when it came out of my mouth. Oh, that's even grosser. (laughs) Can you just reverse and try that again? Uh, Thomas Hill argues that the author leans on the motif of bodily fluids in this saga to achieve a literary effect. Is that better? Uh, it's slightly less nauseating, at least. Yes, uh, this is the, uh, I, I mean, I know this one. This is Beer, Blood, Vomit, and Poetry, the, the essay that he wrote, right? Yeah, yeah, I think I think we brought it up. I mean, I hope we did back in Chapter 44. I don't think we did. When Ale killed Atloybord. No, I don't think well, so. I'm bringing it up now because Hill's point is partly that we need to understand the metaphorical matrix that these fluids had for an Icelandic audience if we want to make sense of their place in the story. For example... Well, Kvassar's mead is an example. Uh, For Hill, the connection between Ale's drinking and his poetry is intertwined with references to poetry, ale, and the gods in that poetry. Mm. And all of that links back to blood and vomit, since they're both inherent in the mythic origins of Kvassar's mead. Mm. Okay. So if we're going to talk about this, then I guess we we should probably cover what Kvassar's mead is. Not it. Oh, John... You started this. You know what? Here's an idea. Let's let's offer a uh, saga brief on Kvasser's Mead, and then you know the thing we do. Yeah, we'll we'll get right to that. Yeah. No. All right. I can I can handle this quickly in the briefest of ways. So a little bit of background in Norse myth. The basic story is that Kvasir was a man made from the mingled spit of all the Asir and the Vanir, the gods, in other words, mm-hmm. and they collected all of this spit in a cauldron to represent a peace pact between them. It's a brotherhood. Yeah, myth is fun. I bet everyone thought we'd run out of gross fluids to bring up in this episode. Yeah, blood and vomit wasn't enough for you? Yeah. Yeah. So Kvasir turns out to be the wisest man ever. And the moistest. (laughs) 
No, I don't like that word. The, the <laughs> short version is that Kvasser is killed by two dwarf brothers who want to own his blood to, I guess, co- corner the market on wisdom. Is that good? Uh, well, it's a rare commodity, especially these, in liquid form. Especially these days. Um, <laughs> the dwarf brothers use the blood to make a blood and honey mead, but Odin eventually steals back the mead by hiding it in his mouth and then transforming into a bird to fly back to Asgard. And then he spits it back out into a waiting cauldron. Well, vomits it, basically. Fair enough, yes. He vomits it or spits it into a cauldron, but a little of it spills out. And that spilled part is the origin of human poetry. Okay, so there's a lot of details you skipped there, but that's probably for the best. Well, wait for the saga brief. Fair enough. Uh, (laughs) The essence is that the myth, which again, Snorri wrote, includes blood, vomit, booze, and spit, all in the service of poetry. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think Hill's probably onto something here. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, Roberta Frank has argued that the Kvassar's Mead myths are not part of the original ancient myth cycle. They're a more recent addition. But, I mean, that doesn't actually hurt his argument at all. It fits exactly. well with the idea that our author, if he is the infamous Snorri Sturluson, uh, is also compiling those myths and possibly adding to them, fleshing them out. Right. Now, and Andy, I, I don't know if you remember, we also talked about earlier in this saga that Arnbjorn was at pains to set up a comparison between Ale and the semi-mythical poet Bragi. Mm who is in turn linked to the god of poetry, Bragi. And the the overlap between Bragi and Kvasir is a whole different kettle of mead. Uh, but those uh, links are there in the myths as well. Right. Now, especially the myths written by Snorri. Convenient. Which would mean that the fluid and poetry link connects all these themes together in a big, gross puddle. I hate you. I like this. I like it. I think we're now dangerously close to arguing that Snorri invented Kvasser's mead, though. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm gonna back away slowly from this argument before it becomes an entire thesis on its own. Fair enough, John. Uh, besides, the uh, the clock on the wall tells me it's time to dip into the old listener rune sack and see what's in there. You needed a, you needed a clock for that? I'm going to be honest with you, John. I don't have a clock on the wall. Who Who even has clocks anymore? But, you uh, know I have clocks on the wall, so... I know you do, because you're an old yeah. man. Oh. But I don't have clocks on the wall, because I'm still young. I'm I, I'm only 46. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we do have questions, and some observations in the rune sack that are worth sharing. Great. Anything about Ale Saga in there? Indeed there is. Ashley B. contacted us through Facebook with a clever observation. She finished listening to part nine of Ale Saga and got to thinking about how Scott Legrim dies after riding out and hiding his chest of treasures in chapter 39. I remember it well. Yes, as you should. So Ashley wonders if there's significance to Scott Legrim laying down in bed, still wearing his clothes. She writes, mm-hmm. I wonder if he did this on purpose so that when Ale found him, he would know that his father had been out doing something. Perhaps, if Ale recalls their last exchange, he may even suspect what his father had been up to. Now, Ashley thinks that Scott Legrim might want Ale to know that he's withholding money from him, just like Ale withheld Athelstan's generous compensation for Thorolf. 
I like that. Um, I think it's it it suggests that Ale would need that clue, and I'm not entirely sure that that's the case because Ale and Scott Legrim live in close quarters and clearly know a fair amount about what each other has hidden away. Uh, Scott Legrim, remember, knows that Ale has those chests of silver mm-hmm. that were compensation for Thorolf, even though Ale never mentioned it to him. Uh, so at least one of them has been snooping around the house and looking into uh, locked chests of silver. <laughs> right. uh, so whether Ale knows how much wealth there should be in the house and now how much of it is missing, uh, I suppose yeah. what that would do, right? seeing that uh, Scott Legrim had gone out into the marshes by himself, would would mean that Ale then doesn't suspect a servant of having stolen the, the money or anything. That's right. It, it suggests uh, that people that. saw him going out, right? Right. With the right. cauldron uh, that, with a cauldron and the chest under his arms. Right. And then coming back uh without those things. Yes. Uh it's certainly I mean there's the combination of the anecdotal evidence from the the people in the house and then the fact that his father dies in his riding clothes. I, there's something to that, isn't there? It's uh, yeah. uh it's it, it it adds to the evidence pile if Ale needed more evidence. That his father's last act was to kind of screw him out of his inheritance. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And the the best part of Ashley's comment is the idea that Scott Legrim doesn't even have to come back as a Draugr to to kind of haunt Ale, uh, because he can haunt Ale with the hidden money instead. <laughs> that to me, that's a great way to think about it. I like that because if, if uh, anything haunts great. Ale, it's it's money that he doesn't have access to. Well, money that he feels is his by right, yes. that he has no way of getting. Yeah, and he's there's willing nothing to... that'll go ahead. There's nothing that'll run him down faster than feeling like there's money of his that's just out of reach. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's willing to go back and forth to Norway constantly at yeah. the risk of his own life to claim the smallest amount of money that he thinks mm-hmm. is his. Yeah. Well, and as we just saw, and then just sell off the farms as soon as he actually gets them. He does. It's not about the property. It's not about the principal. He just wants the money. Yeah, and, and the respect that, you know, like, this yeah, is owed sure. to me, and so it's a matter of honor. Right, right. right. Um, uh, thank you for that, Ashley. Yeah, it's a great um, one. Andy, we've also got something here from uh, Dr. William Campbell, who teaches as a professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh-Greenberg. Mm-hmm. So we may be in trouble here. Uh, Dr. Campbell wrote in response to our recent attempt to answer a question about cooking fires on board Viking-era ships. I never would have imagined that that would have become a multi-episode conversation right. that we got a response but there's something about the uh, material culture stuff like with the swords as well mm-hmm. right things that we're not experts in that that's the thing that sparks the right sparks the <laughs> people fires. can hear the people can hear the uncertain timber of our voices when we get into these areas and yeah they say ah we're, we're time to help these poor these poor saps yeah literary tropes that's something we you know we can sure we can play sure. with but uh uh, so let me, let me read to you a, a little bit of uh, Dr. Campbell's letter. All right. Uh, he writes, You brought up the interesting question of cooking on board an open vessel. And that sent me back to a set of books I hadn't opened in years, Conway's History of the Ship. In the volume, The Earliest Ships, in the chapter on Viking ships, and now now I've just learned that there's a chapter on Viking ships in Conway's History of the Ship, which means I didn't have to look up that book. Uh, in that chapter, there's a picture of an iron cauldron and a tripod found with the Osberg ship. But the caption explains that no fireplace existed on board, so cooking had to be done ashore. Now, of course, it's hard to prove a negative. Intentionally buried ships, such as the Osberg ship and the Sutton Hoo ship, 
might not carry everything that a real ship had. A fireplace could in theory be nothing more than a pile of dirt to insulate the decking boards from the heat of the fire, and that might wash away in the process of a boat sinking, so even excavated wrecks might not preserve something that was present. In any case, cooking aboard a medieval ship was common enough, but not without its logistical challenges. It would be surprising if it never happened on a Viking Age craft. The biggest challenge there would probably be keeping the firewood dry, uh, I assume they would use coal, uh, and either keeping a small fire lit continuously or kindling a new one regularly. Love the show, keep them coming. Interesting. So yeah, uh, if I'm if yeah. I'm understanding that correctly, those books that uh, our our good friend Dr. William Campbell is is quoting, they support your John your theory of what was going on. Well, more or less. Um, that should I mean, make you feel good. Yeah, I'm pretty pleased about it. You know, even a broken clock is right once in a while. <laughs> 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 well, I'm, I, 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 for one, am proud of you. And uh, uh, well, thanks to Dr. Campbell for sending that in and making yeah. John uh, feel good. I'm sure he's going to rush upstairs to his wife after we're done and let her know how right he was. No, I actually feel like the next step here is to move into Mythbuster territory, see if we can figure out a way to cook on a long ship. Oh, uh, well, you know, the that's, is the uh, the, the Draken still at uh, Mystic? No, it is not. Uh, and even if it were, I don't think they'd let me set fire to it. Well, not set fire uh, to it. Throw some dirt down. Light a fire. <laughs> I think we. I think we do this at one twentieth scale. I need to build a two foot long uh, Viking short ship uh, and try to light a tiny little fire in it. Out of the proper materials, of course. Right. Possibly using duct tape. Uh, no, they given didn't. what I know of MythBusters, they didn't have that. Uh, but I mean, this is really—we're getting more into my life goals here, and this isn't really about the uh, the actual sagas anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but thank you, Doctor Campbell. Uh, I think we've done enough damage for one episode, Andy. I agree. This has been a fun one, but a damaging uh, one to both of our reputations. Well, I mean, to what there was of them. <laughs> uh, if you'd like to send us a question, a comment, or a request that we cease and desist, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, what did you think of Ale's latest adventure? Too much vomit. Not enough vomit. Yeah, I, I don't think the not enough vomit is a demographic we really need to be courting. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to get a hold of us, you can reach us by email at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can join in on our conversations on Twitter, where we're sagathingpod, or on Facebook, where we are sagathingpodcast. Or you can check in on our WordPress blog, which is sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. Uh, or you can carve a message inexpertly on a whalebone and leave it under our pillow. Yes. Just please be careful. Please. Uh, you went the high road there. I was really expecting uh, <laughs> one last upchuck joke from you. Well, I, I didn't think we needed to bring that up again. Ah, uh, there it is. Um, <laughs> I'd also like to remind you to uh, send us, if, you, if you're particularly inspired by something in this episode, uh, go ahead and... <laughs> Put, I shudder to imagine. Put pen to paper or mouse to screen and uh, give us your interpretation of it with a, a drawing, an illustration, a painting, a sculpture, whatever whatever floats your boat. Um, and a diorama heavily featuring clam chowder. Yeah, and send it to us using the hashtag uh, Saga Thing Art. Uh, we've received a couple uh, in, in recent days. Uh, we received a, a great 
Lego image from uh, Rob at Totalis Rankium. Oh, I love that. Of uh, Ale's duel with Atli the Short. And uh, mm. we also received from Brian Faust a, a hilarious drawing of Ale flipping that bull <laughs> over, his, over his head. It's such a great drawing. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, if you're interested in sending us some of that, uh, the again, send it to us at uh, one of our social media outlets or on our email. Uh, that's it for now. Goodbye, everyone. We'll be back soon with the penultimate episode of Ale Saga. Bye for now. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That's the stupidest thing you've ever heard? Have you been listening to us for the last three hours? <laughs>